Welcome to episode 99 of the Star Trek Academy, a podcast about the latest new Star Trek. Today we're looking at season three, episode six of Star Trek Picard entitled The Bounty. I'm the Academy media professor, Michael Merrick. And I'm the Academy philosophy professor, Rodney Cup. And you can find us on Mastodon, Twitter, and Facebook, all with the same username, at Trek underscore Academy. And we also have a Tumblr address, that's Trek Academy without the underscore. And of course, you can listen directly on our website, anchor.fm slash Star Trek Academy. And to set the stage for our conversation today, we are going to do our episode summary. It's going to be quick. This is a summary of the episode, The Bounty. Beware that spoilers follow. Um, but for those of you who have seen the episode, this will refresh your memory. And doing our summary this time is Dr. Michael Merrick. Beverly has diagnosed Jack with Eromotic Syndrome, something that caused Picard's first body to die. Jack's having trouble coping with the diagnosis, but it may explain some of the visions and things he's been having. Worf and Raffi arrive at the Titan, and the crew hatches a plan to burgle Daystrom Station to find out what else was taken in the changeling theft. But Worf, Raffi, and Riker are trapped on the station when other Starfleet ships arrive and Titan has to flee. They find Data, who you remember has already died twice. This is a more or less like flesh and blood positronic Data developed by Alton Soong, who we met in season one before he died. It contains multiple personalities that aren't plugged together yet, including a lot of data, bits of lore, before, and Soong himself. Again, they're not integrated, so they may switch back and forth. Picard takes Titan to the Starfleet Museum run by Geordi LaForge. After lots of character development, Titan heads back to Daystrom Station carrying the cloaking device from the HMS Bounty. Yeah, the Klingon bird of prey from Star Trek The Voyage Home, which is in the museum. They beam Worf, Raffi, and Data off, but Riker is trapped behind and captured by Vatic, who's now pretty clearly a changeling. She has also, it appears, kidnapped Deanna in order to get Riker to reveal where Jack Crusher is. The data from Daystrom Station switches among personalities, but reveals that what else was taken from Daystrom Station was human remains and apparently Picard's original body. And that's where the episode ends. Not everything is clear about this theft and what it means and what the changelings want. Yeah, I, I have no clue. <laughs> well, our main mission of this podcast is to talk about the philosophy, the themes, and the morals to the story. But before we get to that, we usually like to talk about the production of the episode. We're talking about production design and continuity with past Star Trek, character development and the like. Do you want to get us started, Michael? Well, Rodney, there are so many Easter eggs in this episode that we're not even going to yeah. try to list them in any comprehensive way. That It's easy to find out there on the internet. Well, we can give you this quick list. Genesis 2 device. James T. Kirk, genetically modified Tribble. And those are probably just fan service, probably not going back to them, but with this season, yeah. who knows? I do have to say it was a bit emotional seeing 
several starships from previous Star Trek series that are at the museum. Uh, I do have a couple of notes about that, however. We see an original series version of the Constitution class, not the Strange New Worlds version. It's the New Jersey because, of course, the original series Enterprise was refitted and then crashed. It's really hard to find, but Jonathan Archer's NX-01 Enterprise is there. It's showing a refit that's not previously been seen on screen, but is available even in model kit form. It has more of a secondary hull as we're used to in later Starfleet ships. Oh, I have to go back and take a look at that. Something I noticed is that all of the running lights of these ships are on. Yeah. Um, so presumably they're powered up, they're operational, which I guess is what we would expect from somebody like Geordi LaForge, right? Yeah, yes, indeed. Earlier this season, I suggested that Geordi might actually show up in one of these legacy ships to rescue Titan. Um, he didn't do that, but this is just as good, even better seeing so many of them. It was kind of a kind of an emotional moment, I'm sure, for many fans. Oh, yeah, definitely. And um, I had a thought about this, you know, just last time we were talking about hero ships. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if they were going to take the bounty or some other ship. But, you know, the Titan is the hero ship of the season. So it seems to me that, you know, whatever they do, it's going to be done with the Titan. I guess the one exception to that rule is the Excelsior, which managed to do quite a bit in the movies. But still. Yeah, no, I think Titan is the ship, but it was nice seeing the other uh, very familiar ships. Rodney, when I saw the very first scene of this episode after the previous recap, I immediately said, cry, baby, cry, make your mama sigh. Is, is that a Beatles reference, Michael? Well, yeah, I believe that the phrase is uh, on a Beatles song on the White Album. That's right. However... Titan dropping the transponder to fake out the Starfleet ships is almost identical to the beginning of the pilot episode of the TV series Firefly, in which they drop a device to emit a fake distress call to lure off the Alliance ship so that the, the crew of the Serenity can rob a derelict. Mm. I have to say the whole thing with Data is kind of confusing. Yeah, no kidding. So let's talk about that a bit. The tech that Worf and Rafi got from Sneed gets them onto the station, but not into the vault where they find Data. We learned that although Data is quiescent, he's not moving or doing anything, he still sees everything and he is protecting everything that's in the vault. Now, for some reason, Data, and I didn't mention this, I didn't go into this level of detail in the summary, but... Data apparently has decided that the best way to defend the entrance to the vault is to materialize Professor Moriarty. Now, we saw Moriarty in some of the trailers, and of course, he was in a couple of different episodes of Next Generation. But when Data, maybe through Moriarty, sees Riker and Worf, he recognizes them. Now, Moriarty appears, fires projectile weapons, is very hostile, but Data sends musical notes to the song Pop Goes the Weasel, knowing that Riker, who's a musician, and apparently we have just learned a musician with perfect pitch, would recognize right. it. 
from Encounter at Farpoint, where we had that that uh, Pop Goes the Weasel uh, episode with Data and Riker on the holodeck. And so in a way, the song serves as the password. But so that raises the question for me, we know how the changelings got onto the station with that tech that Sneed had, but how did they get in the vault to steal stuff? It's unlikely oh, that question. they would know that they would recognize Pop Goes the Weasel. If secret changelings were directing real Starfleet personnel, well, maybe they wouldn't need to scam their way onto the station at all. And then the, the real personnel might be able to get them into the vault. But they did have to scam their way onto the station. Or was Sneed just faking them out in a plot to allow Vatic to capture some of all of them after all? So that is that is mixed up and, and not clear. Speaking of that, did the Daystrom station computer voice, where they had to plug in the, the computer chip to circumvent the security, did that computer voice sound to you a lot like Majel Roddenberry? You know, she was the voice of the of the right. Starfleet computers for, for decades. Wow. I'd have to go back and listen to that, Michael. I don't know. I mean, Majel has died, so we know it wasn't her. But right. to me, the voice, whoever the voice performer was, sounded very similar, as you would expect on a Starfleet facility. Yeah, I guess so. I'd like to mention maybe a potential problem here. As you pointed out, Beverly has diagnosed Jack with Eremotic Syndrome, and that might explain Jack's hallucinations. But it doesn't explain his ability to switch to combat mode <laughs> that we saw last week. So what's going on here? I mean, maybe Jack is not being entirely forthcoming with his mother. And the aromatic syndrome doesn't fully explain what's happening to him. But in this case, maybe it doesn't explain anything that's happening to him. Uh, certainly not combat mode, maybe not even those hallucinations. So I suspect we'll be learning more about this in the future episodes. This this is not a mystery that's been solved yet. Yeah, we saw Picard have hallucinations with Eremotic Syndrome, but only far in the future, long after Next Generation in the alternate timeline when he was working right. in his vineyard. And in addition, these things don't explain why the Changelings or whoever that other bad guy is want Jack. Mm -hmm. Here are some quick... Uh, takes, as I said, Vatic is now pretty clearly a changeling, but the creature that came out of her hand, and we see that again in this episode, is apparently something else. Now, last week we suggested paw wraiths from the, the final story arc of Deep Space Nine, and since then we've seen a few other reviewers make that same guess, so we will see that to me, paw wraiths, which I think we mentioned first, <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. make the most sense and there we know that they're bad guys so so that would work i'm wondering though why does a changeling smoke hmm. i don't know is it just a choice of the producers to show that she's a bad guy was there an original vatic who smoked who the changelings hmm. killed and are taking her place and using her mannerisms but other people on the strike with her are also apparently changelings so that's that's yeah. that's not clear. Note that Vatic says the goal of the changelings is silence, unity, and peace, which doesn't seem to line up with terrorism, but that goal does kind of line up for their original reason we learned about in Deep Space Nine 
for creating the dominion in the first place, which was mm -hmm. self-protection from solids that feared and persecuted and tried to hunt them down. So the changeling role and the other bad guy role, there may be different motivations there. I joked about it last week, but I still want to know, where is La Serena? It's oh. the only ship that Rafi and Worf had to rendezvous with Titan, but they beamed aboard Titan and then Titan flew off. Okay, that makes sense. But, you know, when they beamed aboard Titan, I was wondering, you know, beamed aboard from where? That that was my question because we didn't get to see the departure point. Yeah, so I, I found mean, that a little confusing. Yeah, I, I assume it was La Serena there that they the two ships had rendezvoused. And maybe La yeah. Serena is still floating there in a parking orbit near that star because they don't really need it. I joked last week yeah. about it fitting in the the Titan's <laughs> hangar bay, but I right. think it's probably a bit large for that. But I'm, I keep being interested in this because now this is just me. I'm not saying anything on behalf of anyone connected with Star Trek, but one path forward I see for the cast of Picard season three, when we go on to whatever is next for them, is some of them at least leaving Starfleet, maybe getting kicked out and becoming Fenris Rangers. So they would need a ship and... Seven of Nine was already using La Serena in her Fenris Rangers mode. It would be a perfect ship to use for that. If that hypothetical idea for a next Star Trek series were to come about Star Trek Rangers, what do you think about that name? Oh, I like that. I like that. Just my thought, my creative thought idea. I'm guessing we will have some kind of series with some of these characters that follows Picard, but we'll see. Worf makes yeah. an interesting statement during this episode, which to me feels like foreshadowing. He says that Roe Laren's death must not be in vain and that they need to protect Starfleet and her kin. Now, Laren's kin would be the Bajorans who live near the wormhole out of which the changelings come from uh, another quadrant to reach the alpha quadrant. So that does suggest to me that maybe we're going to see more focus on, on Bajor and the wormhole at some point here. Another bit of foreshadowing, possible foreshadowing, Worf mentions the apparent breakup of Seven and Raffi. So I'm wondering if Raffi is destined for maybe a relationship with a Klingon guy. Uh, that could be painful. <laughs> Literally and figuratively, maybe. Yeah, that's right. By the way, we've never seen on screen what the Enterprise E did during the Dominion War, what Picard and all our other heroes did during that war. I don't know if it's been addressed in books or graphic novels or anything like that, but at least on screen, we don't really know what uh, what these guys were doing. But I'm wondering if something back then is what is triggering the Changeling's interest in Jack and Picard or whoever the other guys are paw wraiths are or others if this is all tied up with wormhole and bajor and changelings it may be something that we will learn the enterprise e did during that war mm. you know speaking of jack when he was talking to picard he said it was due to his mother that he's principled and just in our last episode i mentioned how principled picard is i think that's one of his most prominent characteristics so I just wanted to say that I think maybe he got that from his father. Not to say that Beverly isn't principled, but that seems to be <laughs> one of Picard's, you know, main virtues, I guess. 
Well, and if both parents have the same trait, it would be reinforced in a descendant. So, yeah. We learn in this episode from Alandra that every Starfleet ship is integrated. And that means, actually, kind of like Mastodon instances, they all talk to each other. And that means that, for one thing, it will be easy for Starfleet to find Titan. But it also means that Starfleet learned absolutely nothing from the Diviner's mm. attack on Starfleet 20 or so years ago that That's we right. saw in Prodigy. All the ships networked together and automatically forwarding communications and that. When Alondra mentions Hangar Bay 12 to her father, we don't hear that term again, but do you think she is referencing the docking station where, where the bounty is? I mean, that's what I gathered because then they ended up with the uh, cloaking device. So, so that, that means that Alandra had the idea before Jack and Sydney did, who kind of get the credit for, for the theft of the cloaking device. Mm -hmm. But I was thinking when Seven was showing Jack the ships in the museum, she said she'd been at the museum before. She knew, she knew what was there. Did she intentionally implant the idea to Jack of stealing the cloaking device? Because they talked about the <laughs> right. bounty having a cloaking device, and yeah. she's the one that brought up the topic. I wonder if yeah. she was doing a little behind-the-scenes manipulation there herself. <laughs> and speaking of the cloaking device, here's something that didn't quite work for me. It's kind of a strange scene. The Titan comes back to Daystrom Station after getting the cloaking device working, you know, the way it zaps in from warp, it's right there, and then immediately it cloaks. But Shaw says that the other Starfleet ships had not detected them. They right. should have been detected, even though Titan was just visible for a moment. The other ships should have been scanning and know that there was something there. There should have been some kind of blip on their sensors. Yeah. Michael, I agree completely. That's exactly what I was thinking when I saw that. You know, the other side of that coin is I don't recall off the top of my head that we've ever seen a cloaked ship traveling at warp. So it may be one of the principles of physics of this of the Star Trek universe that that you can't drop out of warp already cloaked, that you have to drop out and then cloak. It was nice to see the USS Sternbach as one of the other ships there at Daystrom Station presumably named for illustrator and longtime Star Trek production staff member Rick Sternbach. That was a very nice tribute. And finally, for this part of the podcast, Rodney, after this episode, I went back and looked closely at the closing credits to see what more they foreshadowed in the closing credits. Mm. There's one scene of a device in the credits, and looking at it and looking back at the scene in the episode, that's the cloaking device. So they showed us the oh, cloaking okay. device from episode one in the closing credits. I also noticed something I hadn't before in looking at those closing credits. You know, all Star Trek includes the originator credit for Gene Roddenberry. But in this case, it's not simply given as Star Trek, which is what they usually do, but it specifically credits based on Gene Roddenberry's Star Trek, The Next Generation, which is, of course, where the whole storyline of the series comes from. But just interesting that they credited him on The Next Generation and not the mastermind of all of Star Trek from the beginning. Yeah, that, I mean, that makes sense. It's appropriate. Yeah, it, it does. Just, <laughs> a, just a, a thing I noticed, yeah. Okay, well, let's talk about meaning. And at this point, we're going to 
try to divine any messages that the writers or producers wanted to convey to us, the fans and the viewers. Um, anything maybe we want need to take away from this episode, even if it was not intended. Yeah, Rodney, again, in this episode, we get messages about family and what's often yep. called found family. We've talked about that, I think, every episode this season. This yes. time, primarily, it's relating to Sydney and Jordy. It's not surprising for a father, but Jordy wants to keep his daughter safe. And so initially, he declines to help Picard and, in fact, negotiates a deal to keep Sydney from getting in trouble. But she counters that the Titan crew is her family and that that is something she learned from her father, from his stories about the next generation time. Seven echoes the ship's crew as family when she reflects on her time on the USS Voyager, which is one of the ships in the museum. Uh, she takes the next step and says she was reborn into that family. And she and Jack talk about the motivation to make connections and finding a new family, which essentially is what both of them are doing this season. Jack reflects about family to his father, Jean-Luc, uh, about the things he inherited from his mother and his father, as you alluded to earlier, Rodney. At first, he's kind of upset that he's got this disease he, he inherited, but later he is also seeing the upside of his inheritance, personality traits that he had never known where they came from until he came to understand Jean-Luc. Yeah, and just saying, you know, that's a considerable upside, isn't it? Yeah. And um, something I wanted to say about Jack and Seven, you pointed out that they're both looking for a new family. Maybe that's foreshadowing, Michael. <laughs> if not just for the series, maybe a spinoff? I don't know. We had hints about Sydney and Jack and Jordy saying, stay away from my daughter. Yeah, <laughs> right. But I would add to your list also Alton Sung and Daystrom Android M510. Who we're referring right? to as Data, the, the, yeah. the next incarnation of Data. Yeah. And I say that because in his in that video message that we saw, Sung said that he hoped that this Android would rise to be the best of us. He almost sounds like a an expectant, hopeful father to me. You know, I think that's a trait we've seen among all of the Soongs. Uh, you know, for example, the, the Soong that was in Star Trek Enterprise and was raising the augments. And we don't have to go into detail about that. But he was very much in a parental role there. You know, the Soong that created Data had a parental type feel. So I think in some ways, every Soong that we've seen, you know, appearing to do it a little bit differently has, has had that consideration of, of fatherhood with respect to the things that he has created. On the other hand, Moriarty's statement about the found family of our heroes, I think is clearly intended to carry meaning. He says to, again, it's Worf and Rafi and Riker, what solvable puzzles you all are, your unguarded expressions, your visible scars. My, how time has spun you all apart such pathetic old warriors that's a pretty strong statement but remember we know that this isn't really our moriarty ai from the next generation it essentially came from data or at least from one of his personalities to me it sounds a bit like lore 
or maybe even Alton mm-hmm. Soong uh, himself, that personality within the android. And it sounds to me like it could have been coming from either of them. But, you know, Rodney, and we've kind of alluded to this before, this focus all through the season of family, family dynamics makes a lot of sense. You know, on the one hand, given this is a reunion of the cast and crew from 30 years ago, yeah, but very similar themes have been addressed in other recent Star Trek series about family and found family. And I think that the message is clearly intended for us because there are so many elements in our society that do not feel welcome in what should be their families, either their biological families or other groups of people that have a family feel. Family members who do not understand or accept their LGBTQ fellow family members. That's an obvious example. But I think equally important is the alienation that takes place just every day when political operatives attempt to divide what you might say should be our cultural family. So I think uh, I think that that is a motivation behind this message that we're seeing in uh, in almost all of the modern Star Trek series. The current Star Trek series are making these allusions to family and found family. And if I could take that just a little bit further, Michael, sure. you you might say that our cultural family is a kind of found family. I think you know in every country at some time or other, you know there are factions who would rather not include some people into this found family, whereas others welcome them. And that's a kind of situation we're dealing with right now. And Rodney, in our last podcast, we also talked at length, and I think it's related, uh, about the meaning of being seen. And Mm -hmm. as the term is used today, and as it's used in Picard, it goes beyond just visually seeing someone. It is a representation, it's acceptance, It's being understood. It's being respected. And this idea of being seen comes around again in this episode. The comment from Seven, you know, the language is straight out of the year 2023. uh, But I think it does resonate with long-term Star Trek themes of equality and self-determination and respect. I agree, uh, especially, well, for me, not that I'm an authority on this particular issue, but being seen adds up to something like being respected. I agree with everything you're saying there. Respected, included, understood. Did I say the word accepted, acknowledged? So, yeah. Well, we can, I guess, shift now into our final thoughts. And I guess, you know, good question here is, did we like the episode? Um, I did. This episode, I think, in a way, wore its uh, themes on its sleeve, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. I mean, I like Let That Be Your Last Battlefield, I admit it. Um, But, you know, did you like it, Michael? And and what do you think is coming next? Well, yes, I did. Uh, Again, this week, consider it to be a strong episode uh, overall. There was so much character development that that overshadowed the action sequences, uh, which is is fine. You know, just character development all the way around. Jordy's ambivalence or his mixed feelings about protecting his daughter, daughters versus his larger obligations to protect Starfleet and to support his found family. I think they speak both to his character, but I think all parents with children, and particularly maybe children who are coming of age, can relate to Jordy's feelings about that. Absolutely. I did think that the inclusion of Moriarty was a bit forced. 
I have to say that when Moriarty appeared in the trailers before the season began, I couldn't quite figure out how they were going to cobble him in. And it turns out that it wasn't really the AI character we saw in Next Generation. It was, if you will, just a subroutine of data. And, you know, I, I don't know. It didn't didn't do that much for me. I think it could have been handled in a different way. Yeah, I agree, Michael. It feels like we were misled about that. Or others might say lied to. I was expecting Moriarty, and that's not who we got. And I'd like to add something actually about M510 um, that I think is pretty important. Sung said that a great deal of data went into M510. But whatever that thing is, it had better not be data. Otherwise, you know, they'll spoil, I think, the season one finale, which I thought was intended to give data like a decent ending, you know? Yeah, or, I, I, you I know, thought it I thought it was too. I mean, the theory is that before data launched himself at Shinzon's ship in order to save Picard. He essentially downloaded a copy of himself into B4, but the B4 android was never able to make use of it, so it just kind of sat there in memory. So in theory, the version, the backup of data that uh, appears in this android might have been current as of right before data launched himself into space to save Picard. But again, he'll be mixed in with Lore and B4 and Soong, so we can't expect it to be just a perfect replication of a, a backup of data waking up. Again, as a creative idea, bringing data back a third time, uh, I, I think they're doing okay with it so far. Was it really necessary to the storytelling? Will they be able to fully differentiate this one from the one who voluntarily ended his existence in season one? I don't know. Well, whatever happens, it could be a an interesting exercise in the philosophical problem of personal identity. Well, and maybe you will have more to say about that in next week's podcast. When sure. we see more about what this data is is doing. I assume that sooner or later he's going to be up and walking around and talking and doing things, but we'll see. Rodney, on the Ready Room this week, Will Wheaton teased that there will be a character appearing in next week's episode the episode is entitled dominion i'm not sure if it's dominion or the dominion but mm. that that character's appearance revealing who it is would be a massive spoiler the actor playing the role will appear on ready room next week but again no hint as to who it was going to be we had previously talked about the feasibility of odo appearing likely with a different face but in some ways it could be any of the other deep space nine characters and following up on that threat that Worf mentioned to the kin of Rolaren on Bajor. And if the Pawraiths are really involved, then again, some expertise from the people that were on Deep Space Nine during the Dominion War would make sense. So look for another big reveal for next week, and we'll be here to talk about it with you. That reminds me that we did see uh, Kira on Lower Decks. Uh, but whatever happens, the possibilities are intriguing. Well, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this podcast. We'll be back next week to look at the next episode of Picard entitled Dominion. And remember that we post podcast updates on Mastodon, on Twitter, and also on Facebook at Trek underscore Academy and on Tumblr at Trek 
Academy without the underscore. And you can always check our website at anchor.fm slash Star Trek Academy. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Star Trek Academy podcast.